Thank you, worship team. If you would, open your hymn book to number 200. We're going to look at some hymns, really some choruses, or Christmas carols, I should say, today. Not because they're divinely inspired like Scripture, but because they are saying some significant things. And sometimes, uh, Redina, I don't know about you, but sometimes we get so familiar with some things in our lives, we don't really appreciate all that's there, all that uh, they give us and do for us. And so uh, we're going to look at just two representative Christmas carols because they teach really important theological truth about Christ. And I mean uh, theological truth about the person and work of Christ, but also with great practical implications, as you'll you'll see. We'll look at, Lord willing, here, old little town of Bethlehem, and hark the herald angels sing. Okay? But let's uh, start by praying for teachability and for troops, peace officers, firefighters. And uh, Ken Wanter, will you pray in that direction for us, please? Thank you. Um, yeah, as we said, we're going to look at two great Christmas carols, Christmas songs today. But before we dive in... Uh, three Christmas songs we will never study or sing this year or any year. Oh, little town of Dead Man's Gulch. We're not going to sing that one. Uh, the night Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer went to the ER after his nose turned blue and fell off. You just don't sing that very often. Uh, it's a tragic moment in his career. And then my personal favorite one we're not going to sing is Have a Holly Jolly Belly slapping, break dancing, tobacco chewing, preacher punching Christmas. <laughs> we're not, we're not doing that one. Uh, last week we looked at the one real meaning of Christmas, the two major biblical passages on Christmas, and then three key terms that describe, uh, our Lord in the context of Christmas. And what did we see? We said the, the real meaning of Christmas is not, uh, little trees need love too. Uh, which has been voiced recently, or uh, it's more blessed to give than to receive, and which is a wonderful sentiment. But the real meaning of Christmas is the babe in the manger was and is, yeah, God-man Savior. You notice, instead of giving us stuff, Michael, God gave us himself. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we built his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So that's the real meaning of Christmas. And we talked about the two major passages. And Carol, we said, you want to put Luke 2 first because Luke 2 describes the night, Christmas night, the night of the birth. Matthew 2 talks about events that took place months later, maybe as much as a year later. On the night of the birth, uh, we have the incarnation of God in a manger, in a cattle trough, in a very surprising place. Heavenly signal to humble shepherds who come and worship and see the Christ child. A year later, months later for sure, Iraqi big shots who are believers uh, come after supernatural sign, but they don't know about Micah 5.2 that says the uh, Messiah would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Right, Wanda? So if you're from way out of town and you're coming to Israel to find the king, you're going to go to the capital city, which is why they went to Jerusalem and then Herod, who wanted to kill the baby, but had no idea about Micah 5.2 either, although he should have, called his religious advisors, and they said, hey, we Micah 5.2, we can cite it in Hebrew for you. Messiah's going to be born in Bethlehem. And the advantage of that was, for the wise men, Zach, you know how far Bethlehem is from Jerusalem? Is it, you think it's a long way? Yeah. Six miles, downhill all the way from Jerusalem. And, and so they send these Iraqis to go worship him, and what does Herod say? Hey, when you find him, send word to me so I can come worship him too. Blanche, I'm going to give you the same opportunity we gave you last week. You did very well. Are there lies in the Bible? Accurately recorded lies like that one, because Herod doesn't want to worship baby, the baby Jesus. What does he want to do? He wants to kill the baby Jesus. He's already killed two of his sons. Herod, great. Very, very paranoid about his power. So we looked at the one real meaning, uh, two major passages, and then we talked about key titles uh, around which the whole purpose of Christmas revolves. And I'm thinking of Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, the name of our Savior, Yeshua, means God's Savior. Lord affirms His deity. Christ affirms His Saviorhood. 
So his name is God's Savior. His key titles are God's Savior. In the Bible, there are some things hard to understand, but the main things are plain things. The main things are plain things, and they get repeated a lot. Like the person and work of Jesus is a main thing. It's a plain thing at, at, at its core. I mean, it's so simple, a little child can believe and be saved, and yet you can spend your whole life looking at the theology of it. So that's what we look, looked at last week. But today we're going to look at uh, two great Christmas carols because they teach us great theological and also some great practical truth about Christ that we want to focus on during this Christmas season. All right, let's start with uh, a little town of Bethlehem. And uh, let me just read this, and I, I would sing it, but I don't have enough uh, guts or courage to do that. So we're just going to read through this. Just notice that a pastor, uh, Philip Brooks, actually wrote the, the words to this song, which is pretty cool. And then uh, his uh, organist wrote the music. Okay, the first line says, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Little town of Bethlehem. And that's literally true. Uh, they estimate, the scholars estimate, there were less than a thousand people living in Bethlehem when Jesus was born there. And, watch this, nothing really much important had happened there for a thousand years. The last important thing that had happened there was David being born there, right? So, about a thousand people, nothing much in human viewpoint had happened for a thousand years there. And I think you learned some lessons there. God doesn't just work through the miraculous. He works through the mundane. God's not just in the special. He's in the normal. People waking up on Monday morning and getting ready and going to work and going to school and working hard and not cheating on the tests and not using God's name to punctuate their sentences and then coming home and fixing dinner and doing whatever you do. God is at work not just in the special but also the normal. And, Carol, this is important. God's at work in a big way even in little towns, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Now notice, uh, this is not scripture, and anybody who's writing songs will take a certain poetic license. I don't think this is uh, uh, a position of the Christian faith that we have to believe nobody was having a dream of the thousand residents in Bethlehem I don't think you have to take that to the bank that nobody was dreaming that night. They're just, right, Kay? Just painting a picture. <clears throat> Yet, even though everything seems normal, in thy dark street shineth the everlasting capital L light. That's a reference to Christ in infant form. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight, in the everlasting light, the person of Jesus Christ. All right, number two. For Christ, what do you know about that title? It's not his last name. It's a title uh, that means Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior, the one promised in the Old Testament who will come as a lamb and who will come as a lion. Oh, Christ is born of Mary. Mary is not the mother of God. She is a wonderful person. She was the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Uh, she became pregnant via a supernatural Virgin conception, you cannot repeat in a laboratory anywhere on planet Earth. Uh, and nine months later, we have the virgin birth. But the miracle of the virgin birth, Russell, is really the virgin conception. And um, that's how we end up with a God-man Savior. Uh, for Christ is born of Mary, and gathered all above while mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. Oh, morning stars. Notice morning stars in Job is used for angels, and so you've got angels Morning stars, that's a parallelism. We're still talking about angels. Proclaim the holy birth to shepherds and praises sing to God the King and peace to men on earth. Number three, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. Now, you know, I was, I've wondered about that. I, does Mary know that about 1800 years after she gave birth through a normal vaginal birth, through the supernaturally conceived Savior, that we're talking about how silently the, the, the gift was given. I've been present for two live births. I saw the whole thing, and it wasn't a quiet thing, okay? 
Uh, I was the first generation. My dad didn't go watch me get born. He's sitting out smoking cigars, passing cigars out in the waiting room. You know, I was the first generation. I mean, we were, we were the trailblazers, man. I was the first generation of American men that went, that got trained. And we went to like six weeks of Lamaze classes. And uh, they never used the word pain. They used the word discomfort. Now, when your wife has discomfort, and Debbie said, yeah, discomfort, like grab your, grab your, your, your lip and pull it over the top of your head. That's the kind of discomfort we're talking about here. Uh, when your wife has discomfort, remind her to breathe. And so I did a really good job of reminding her to breathe. And uh, both times uh, we did not get epidurals. She wanted them, but it was too late because I was kind of, Literally, when Jonathan was born, this was Saturday afternoon, Ken Venturi still doing the golf tournaments on CBS, and we're like a mile from the hospital in Shreveport, but Bossier City actually across the river. And she'd gone through a couple of fake things. So uh, her and her mother there and said, Brad, I think we got to go to the hospital. I said, listen, you know, I'm, uh, you know, whatever it was, uh, Tom Watson's on the 16th. Uh, let's wait just a couple of holes. We were just like literally, Dale, two minutes from the hospital. So we waited. They kept coming. It's time to go. We get in the car. We drive in the parking lot. Unbeknownst to us, in that last week, they threw up a bunch of um, hurricane fences and stuff. They were doing construction. And so she tells the story that she climbed over this hurricane fence. But she didn't. We just had to go. It took a little longer. We couldn't drive up and drop her off and stuff. But the cool thing is, uh, like 45 minutes later, we had a baby. And uh, so very convenient for me personally on that one. But... <laughs> You know, the pleasure was all mine, like I say. But, um, but yeah, I always wondered about how silently. But it's just saying, you know, if, if you'd been present, it would have looked like a normal vaginal birth. In the aftermath of a normal vaginal birth, you would not have known by your eyeballs anything spectacular, supernatural was happening at all. <clears throat> so, in the same way, silently, when you're regenerate, regenerated through faith, uh, you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, uh, uh, fireworks go off over the sky and the room doesn't vibrate necessarily. So God, in the same way, imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him, as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to be sons of God to those who believe. This, uh, still, the dear Christ enters in. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin, and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels the great glad tidings tell. Oh, come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. And Emmanuel is an anglicized form of a word that means God with us. And uh, sometimes you see it spelled with an E. Sometimes you see it spelled with an I, like Emmanuel Baptist Church. Who's going to tell Emmanuel Baptist Church they spelled their name wrong? No, they didn't spell their name wrong. Uh, whether you whether you tra- whether you put that an e or an i depends on how you transliterate the Hebrew vowel point there and the scholars de- 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 debate on when the e is appropriate and when the i is appropriate. So either way will work. So you don't have to tell the pastor of Emmanuel that they misspelled their name, even though you might want to tweak him and just tell him anyway. Uh, before we look at some details, I would say, you know, this is my personal opinion, but I never wanted to make Santa Claus a big object of faith or Jamie or Jonathan. On the other hand, I didn't feel like he was satanic or that we had to avoid him whatsoever. And, you know, it's, you do get these cute pictures with the kids, you know, at, uh, with Santa Claus and stuff. And uh, uh, Santa, Claus, Santa Claus is now high-tech in Tulsa because a couple weeks ago we got pictures, Pam, of all these little kids at Cedar Ridge Country Club. The Devon go to Santa Claus came to Cedar Ridge Country Club a couple weekends ago in a helicopter. Yeah, and so Cooper is all about helicopters and all about Santa Claus, and so that was an exciting day. And we got this picture of Cooper sprinting toward the helicopter, looking back over his brother. He just left Peter in the, in the dust there. So, uh, you know, I know some Christians don't want to do that. They don't want to have Christmas trees. They don't want to mess around with Santa uh, because it's the whole holiday has been so commercialized. It, it's become pretty nauseous at some uh, context, but... To me, uh, I didn't feel like we were doing anything wrong. We didn't push Santa. As soon as they had their first doubts about Santa, I just filled them in and said, I mean, Jamie's like three years old. Santa's not real, right? I said, no, he's not. But don't tell your friends, you know, because they might take them a little longer to figure that out. Uh, but whether you do Santa or not in your household, we do need to focus on the Savior over Santa. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you. Now, you know, uh, the premise of this uh, song is all about uh, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, and we're so used to that 
we don't really wonder. But that would have been kind of mind-blowing. Now, if you know Micah 5.2, which says that's what's got to happen, uh, it wouldn't have been surprising. But you might think if you're starting with a blank canvas and you're going to have the God-man-Savior make his incarnation, you'd have a gold-encrusted bassinet waiting for him in Jerusalem, outside the temple, or in front of the Parthenon, right? Or uh, somewhere in Rome. But that's not what happened. And in fact, God works in big ways, even in little towns. And Micah, a prophet who wrote his book in about 700 B.C., and there's no doubt this was written well before the birth of Christ because the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm that. We've got Old Testament copies before the era of Christ of Micah uh, that prophesied that the, the Messiah, the Savior, would be born in Bethlehem. Uh, there was actually a Bethlehem in Galilee, but Epaphrata nails it down as though, you know, there's a Paris in Texas. Do you know that? But if people are making a huge deal about you going to Paris or whatever to do studies, you're probably not going to Paris, Texas, unless you're going to chiropractic school or business school there or something, but uh, business college. But, uh, yeah, this is specifically the Bethlehem that David was born in. And uh, Luke 2 and also Matthew 2 confirmed that Jesus was born in that little town, right? Now, as I like to point out, there's a lot of Old Testament data. And the Old Testament, of course, are the books written before the coming of Christ, right? And the Old Testament prophets said a lot about who the Messiah would be, when he would come, what he would do, why he would come, and where he'd be born. And it specifically nails down Bethlehem. So that's a nice example of fulfilled prophecy. Why in the world would you believe prophecies about the end times when it's been at least 2,000 years since Jesus was here? Well, in part because it was about 2,000 years after Abraham got specific promises about the Messiah that Jesus came the first time. So 2,000 years seems like a long time to us, and it is a long time, humanly speaking, but it's, it's, it's not a problem for God. He's not going to forget his promises. So we have a track record on literal fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Uh, let's look at some maps and some pictures. A couple of these are from last week as well. You've seen this. When we think about Herod the Great's kingdom, it was, it was quite large compared uh, after his death in 4 B.C., uh, the uh, Galilee and the Judea of uh, Jesus' day as an adult, was the lines were drawn differently. But Herod has a big kingdom, and you guys know your way around the Holy Land. But I, I'm going to emphasize this in a minute. We've got this kind of circular lake. It's not really a circle. called the Sea of Galilee. And we've got a Jordan River. comes down here. empties into the Dead Sea. And Jesus, of course, would grow up in Nazareth. And Homer and Pam can tell you all about a city that's about two miles north of Nazareth called Sepphoris, where Jesus would have certainly worked as a carpenter part-time because the Romans, trying to impress the locals, built a show city during his working lifetime as a carpenter. There's been a lot of archaeology there. But Bethlehem is down here in uh, the southern region of Judea. The Roman government was nice enough to call a tax census to cause... Micah 5.2 to be fulfilled. Trust me, they weren't trying to fulfill Micah 5.2, but all the things fit together in God's program. Uh, today, if you go to Bethlehem, we don't know the exact site of the birth, of course, but there's this church with a roof shaped like a cross called the Church of Nativity. The courtyard here will be featured on CNN and probably Fox News, and uh, most of the major news outlets will have a live feed at midnight on Christmas uh, morning this year and every year. Uh, directly across from that, there's a mosque. So it would be convenient for the Muslims there. Uh, and there's our group on the outside of that. But let's talk about where Israel, where, where Bethlehem is on a map or on a globe. And um, this is the back side of the earth as we think of it. We're on the other side, of course. That's where we're living right now. But uh, what, what do you see there? That's Africa, right? Asia, Europe, right? And watch this. Can you see that? It's like a magic trick. Can you see the difference between that slide and that slide? I'm circling, let me show you, let me put my pointer up there. Look right there. Okay, that's the globe. That's me circling Israel. Israel is tiny, tiny, tiny. Don't be little Duncan, Oklahoma. God does big things in little towns too, you know. God does big things in little countries too, you know. He even cares about the people in Rhode Island, which is the smallest state. Um now, this is uh, just the region. We looked at the whole backside of the earth as we think of it. I'm sure they wouldn't appreciate me saying that. 
But where's Israel on that? This is pretty schematic, but Israel's right there. Okay? So watch this. We don't do this often enough. You know, uh, what, the, what you kind of hear in, in conventional wisdom is these Israelis are a bunch of bullies and they're bad and mean to the Palestinians and all the Arabs. And, you know, what they don't tell you is we've got six million people in Israel surrounded by 300 million Muslims, Arabs. They're not all jihadists, but a certain percentage are. And it's a miracle they even exist. Now watch. I love this graphic. This shows you the United States. I got it covered, obviously, with that black rectangle. But I want you to picture if we put the entirety of Israel's real estate, of modern Israel's real estate, on top of a map of the United States, how much would it cover? Is it like as big as Alaska? Half of Alaska? You see the blue? Is that blue? That's how big Israel is, okay? Uh, it's tiny. It's tiny. Uh, I love this uh, map because unless you go over there, you don't realize Americans tend to think everything's flat everywhere except, you know, in Colorado, you know? But trust me, you go to Israel, it's not like that. You've got a ridge line on the west side of the Jordan Valley. You've got a ridge line on the Jordanian side and you've got a deep river valley. Uh, Homer, is it possible just to float in the Dead Sea? Have you ever done that, my man? Is that, is that a hoot? That is awesome. There's so much stuff, so much, uh, chemical stuff that's suspended in the water. It's buoyant, buoyant. You're very buoyant when you go back there. You just kind of back in and lay back and you pop up like a cork. So that's worth the price of just going to Israel on its own. That's just the most minor thing. But just realize that, uh, when we say people are coming up to Jerusalem, they're coming up to Jerusalem from any direction. You can be coming from the north and go up to Jerusalem because you're going up to the top of the mountain. Now let me say this in passing. Today, we have this big thing about let's give the Palestinians everything they want. And listen, I know Palestinians. Dr. Ahmad uh, Shahada at Jets is a Palestinian. I'm not anti-Palestinian. I'm not anti-Syrian. I have friends who are Syrians, Iraqis, etc., Literally. Uh, now, Bill uh, is a good buddy of mine still. Uh, occasionally get an email from him in Arabic, which is not good, but the idea of his in Arabic. But what's the big deal about the West Bank? Have you, heard, have you heard about the West Bank? People talk about the West Bank. West Bank. If Israel would just give away the West Bank, peace, happiness, and joy would ensue. Well, here's the problem. We hear West Bank, and as Americans that aren't good with geography, as some of us, including probably me, and we got that lake. What do we call that lake? Sea of Galilee. We got a river, valley. What's that river called? Jordan, Dead Sea. Americans tend to think the West Bank. Okay, they're talking about the West Bank of the Jordan River. So the Jordan River goes from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. And the, the bank of a river is just like maybe the, the 150 yards on either side of the river. <laughs> right? And if that's all I've got to give away, Israel's just got to give them the West Bank. They don't have the West Bank. Um, don't give them the Bank of Jerusalem because then they have a lot of money. But I mean, yeah, the West Bank. Let the West Bank give them the West Bank. Now, that's what they mean. West Bank's technical term for the heart of the entire tiny country of Israel. Did I show you a graphic showing you how the entire thing is teensy-weensy? The West Bank is the term that describes all of this. It's not just 50 yards on either side of the, of the river. Uh, it's this huge section, including half of Jerusalem. Okay, If you give that to the Palestinians, and a lot of Palestinians are nice, just trying to survive, but the radical element tends to get control. Have you heard the term Arab Spring lately? No, because it's not an Arab Spring. It's an Arab tornado, like a lot of people thought would happen. Uh, but anyway, um, I'm going out of town on Monday, so I can say whatever I want to. Uh, if you give them the West Bank, at its narrowest, Israel becomes only nine miles wide. It becomes indefensible. Okay, Even if you handed the keys to that to people that are gentle and that could keep the jihadists out, how about ten years from now or a generation from now? You become, it's just, you're waiting for them to cut you in half and obliterate you. You can't do that. Nobody in their right mind. Uh, you know, if, if you know, if uh, ISIS just wanted Kansas and Nebraska, you think we should give it to them? And if we gave it to them, do you think that would fix anything? 
The next year, they'd want Oklahoma and South Dakota. And frankly, they can have North Dakota right now, but I'm just, no, I don't mean that. I'm, I'm saying that with a song in my heart. That's, that's another picture of the West Bank. Can you see why you can't give the bad guys the West Bank? And we're not talking about just this little side of the river. Not doable. Okay. Now here's the problem. Where is modern Jerusalem located today? It's in the West Bank, okay? Which is why we had to change buses and go from a Jewish bus, Jewish driver, to a Palestinian driver, Palestinian guard, guide, go through the wall, and all that stuff. And we had no problems. The, the Palestinians that control Bethlehem are happy to see anybody, atheists, agnostics, Hindus, Buddhists, Christians, Jews, who want to buy stuff from them. They're happy, okay, to do that. Uh, not everybody there is evil. Now, by the way, you know, when you leave uh, Galilee, uh, Homer, we didn't drive all around the West Bank to get Jerusalem. If you remember, we drove right along the river. You can always see it through Jericho. There are these strips of highway that are controlled by both sides and security on both sides. So they're very safe. And you never hear of incidents there for that reason. But just realize Bethlehem's in the West Bank. Uh, and um, the reason we never go to Hebron is because the neighbors there are not friendly to Jews, and they tend to beat up the Jewish bus driver, and that's a problem, right? So we just we, we haven't been able to go there later, right? All right, that's more than you want to know about little town of Bethlehem. Let's move to another one, shall we? Uh, let's go to our second and final one today. We'll look at uh, Hark the Herald Angels sing, and uh, this has got an interesting history. Because Charles Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church and was a great evangelist in England uh, during the 70 or 80 years just before and just after the American Revolution, just to set that in context, wrote the original words of this song, Katie, in 1739. So Charles Wesley wrote Hark the Herald Angels Sing in 1739. But the words have been modified uh for a couple of reasons, no no nefarious reasons here, but it's interesting just theologically to know that uh, George Whitfield, who was a British evangelist who respected Wesley very much, but Wesley was an Arminian in his theology and Whitfield was a five-point Calvinist and they disagreed on the fine points of how salvation works, but they agreed Jesus was the Savior and salvation was by faith alone and Christ alone. And George Whitfield actually modified Wesley's lyrics a little bit, and a couple of other people over the years have modified the lyrics a little bit, in part because the English language has changed some. Uh, but let's let's read it and comment on it briefly. Uh, Hark! The herald angels sing, Glory to the newborn king. That sounds a lot like Luke 2. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. That's Luke 2. It's a nice synopsis of Luke 2, the night of the birth. Joyful all ye nations rise in response to this. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. House of bread in the West Bank today, prophesied by Micah, happens just like Micah said it would happen 700 years after he said it. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Number two, Christ by highest heaven adored forever from the beginning of the heavens and the earth. He's always been the second person of the Trinity, adored in heaven as such. Christ the everlasting Lord, from everlasting, from, uh, everlasting, thou art God. Late in time, Savannah, look at that. Late in time, behold him coming. We're thinking that was 2,000 years ago. That was ancient history. But again, put yourself in the midst of the biblical story. After creation, fall, flood, and Babel is summarized in 11 uh, chapters, we have 13 about Abraham. We're emphasizing Abraham and then later Joseph in that book. And so, boom, jo- Abraham is told in about 2000 B.C., Meg, that Jesus, Jesus is coming, right? And he's, he's going to be a, a human being, not an angel or an alien. He's going to be a male, not a female. He's going to be Jewish, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the Twelve. He's going to be of the tribe of Judah, and the specifics get more and more. So late in time, God's always right on time, so don't don't panic about that. He hadn't forgotten about his promises or his plan. He never will do that. Sometimes we only see three pieces of the plan, and they don't fit. You know, uh, one of the things we did this year was we got, uh, last week we had 
uh, I told Michael this, but Amanda, we had, uh, both sets of twins. Uh, the youngest twins, uh, uh, this is a memory quiz for me nowadays because I'm old, but I know them. I know them. Uh, Violet and Eloise, they turned eight months last weekend when, uh, they were with us. Then we've got the older twins who are three years old, and Savannah knows them better than I do, actually. Uh, that would be Lincoln and Vivian. And by the way, right after second hour, we're jetting. We're going to be flying very low to get to uh, Edmond so that uh, the, the parents can do something that they have to do all day today. And we're happy to help. But, uh, yeah, so we had the four kids. Then we had Cooper and, uh, and Peter. You all, are going to, you all, I know you all think I forgot why I went, went there, but I didn't. I actually remember that. I can't remember my grandkids' names, but I know why I wanted to refer to them. Uh, I'm going to just tell you that um, one thing we did, we bought this 24, they, they like Mickey Mouse. Now, the parents very reluctantly have been dragged into them liking Mickey Mouse because they're not crazy about Mickey Mouse. And I'm not that crazy about Mickey Mouse. But uh, here's the thing. The Dollar Tree had a 24-piece puzzle for $1, and I'm all in for that. So I bought them out of the goodness of my heart, Scott. I invested in my grandkids' welfare and spent a whole dollar and eight cents tax to buy a 24-piece jigsaw puzzle that had Minnie, uh, Mickey, Pluto, uh who was the uh, the dog? Pluto's a dog. Goofy. Uh, Goofy, yeah. Uh, and uh, Donald Duck. They're all in this thing. So it's, it's great, man. It's like the dream team. They're 24 pieces. So we had Lincoln and Vivian, three-year-old. Cooper, four-year-old. And it took us, you know, like an hour to put this puzzle together. <laughs> it was insane. You know, it was crazy. Not because they couldn't figure it out, but they were throwing the pieces at each other, stepping on them, you know, going over to get cake and stuff. And... It just wasn't very efficient, but there were a couple, there, through that process, I was pretty sure they did, didn't give us the right pieces because it just didn't look like it was coming together. And sometimes in our life, you look around, my best friend's got this, my, my boss is like this, this is happening, that's happening, we got issues in Washington, D.C., oh my goodness, is God really aware of what's going on here? Uh, right to the first of the year, because we live in challenging times, like the foundation looks like it's broken, you realize Psalm 11 deals with that issue? And we're going to say, don't panic, uh, pray, plan, and persevere. And we're going to look at Psalm 11 and Psalm 37 slash 73 and the book of Habakkuk and the book of First Peter. And we're going to help us avoid ulcers, calm down, uh, just pre-decide to do the right thing even when that gets vilified, and not hate anybody in the process. And you've got to have Jesus in you to do that. But anyway... Uh, sometimes it doesn't look like the pieces are fitting together, but God knows what he's doing. Um, late in time, behold him come. He's right on, on schedule. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. That's who Jesus is. He's the God-man Savior who looked like a man during his incarnation because he veiled his glory and gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. He didn't give up his deity. He didn't give up his divine attributes. He gave up the independent use of them. So he could experience the human condition. Uh, pleased as man, willing and able to come and take that very humble position with men to dwell. Jesus are Emmanuel. That's the word that means God with us, spelled with an E uh, or spelled with an I. One person, two natures. When we see Jesus, you're seeing God. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son, S-U-N, there's a title for Christ here, of righteousness. It's making a noise when I'm not even moving, so I'm not sure why it's happening exactly. I used to think I was banging that with my elbow, but it's two, oh for 2 today. Both of them, I didn't do anything. Uh, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Have I mentioned that sometimes hymn writers, songwriters, uh, Deborah, will use poetic license? Does Jesus have wings? No, he doesn't have wings, but we understand it within his arms, within his purview. Mild, he lays his glory by. That's what uh, Psalm two, uh, excuse me, Philippians two talks about him emptying himself of his divine, independent use of his attributes and veiling his glory. Isaiah says the Messiah will come, and he won't look any different than any other average Palestinian Jew. You know, he's not going to be especially attractive that we'd be attracted to him and say he's got to be Messiah. He'd probably be the last one you'd think. Just looks average. Uh, I'm glad to say God can work through average people because I is one, right? Um, amen on the average for me? 
All right, good. I finally got two amens. This is a good one, isn't it? I got two amens already. And we're only like about 2% into the message. No, we're almost done, actually. But we got to get, okay. Uh, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Uh, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. So let's think about this. We've got uh, angels singing to shepherds, and then you've got the sheep out there doing their thing. Uh, what do you know about shepherds? Uh, they wouldn't really be invited to the country club or the fancy banquets because they're just hardworking guys. they got dirt under the fingernails. They don't smell very nice because a lot of times sheep don't smell very nice, and they're always hanging around sheep. Uh, actually, though, you know, uh, being a shepherd is really then and now really a pretty good job. Except for one thing, you gotta deal with the sheep 24-7. Other than that, it's an awful, it's an awesome job, you know. You gotta feed them. You gotta clean them. Cause otherwise they really stink. You gotta watch them so they won't wander off, won't wander off and get lost in the weeds. You gotta protect them from predators. And you gotta protect them from themselves. Cause they'll do all kinds of self-destructive things without knowing it. Um, you know, sometimes they call pastors shepherds. Uh, and I love that title, but uh, what they didn't tell me in seminary is sometimes some of the sheep will bite you. So I just, I'm just telling you that. That does happen sometimes. Uh, this is not a photograph. Uh, it's an artist's representation, but it's better than most, I think. Uh, mild, he lays his glory by. Now, it looks to me like you've got this kind of uh, a light emitting from the, the baby, which is not accurate. Okay, just so you'll know. Uh, they, they, they probably have a lap somewhere else. Am I being too critical? Uh, possibly. But I look at that and I say, okay, we got the cow there, so that's good. We're in the, in the stable. There's Mary. There's Joseph. Who are these cats? Those are the shepherds, yeah. No magi. No magi were used during the making of that photograph, right? Uh, now, Ken and Carol, you haven't seen this. They've kind of stopped doing this, but for uh, 20 years ago, uh, the decorating committee, Angie, and the people that do all that good work put up your kind of your standard kind of nativity scene. The, the problem was we had shepherds and kings there at the same time with the star. And uh, in the middle of a message, see, would any other preacher do this? I, I'm, these guys that run this church, the elders, they love me so much, they actually let me be myself. Which is, which is good, because otherwise I'd be in big trouble. But, uh, yeah... Because, uh, but the first time I noticed that during the message, I just, what did I do? I grabbed the Magi and what did I do? I went east and I moved them next to David. And I said, the Magi don't even, haven't even started packing yet when this is happening. Okay. Now, since I get away with stuff, I'm going to go ahead and do this anyway. Um, I told you last week, don't get your theology from Christmas cards. Get it from the Bible. On the other hand, I didn't mean I don't like Christmas cards. I like Christmas cards. I enjoy Christmas cards. I open them up. I read them. And I particularly like this Christmas card because this was from the Birches. And it had this beautiful picture of the family. Now, I thought some world-famous photographer must have taken that picture because it's a beautiful picture. It was at the mall. What you don't know is uh, they just went to the mall to get a photograph of Mavis. And Mavis wanted the whole family in, so they got this thing. And so... Joke alert. When I saw this picture, I thought, man, she is so beautiful. And Mavis is cute, too. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, I like this drawing. It's an artist representation because you've got the shepherds there. We've got the, uh, the manger scene. Not crazy about the light coming off the baby Jesus because, by definition, he veiled his glory, right? Now, there was one time in his ministry he, his glory was unveiled. The, what? Transfiguration, right? And it had to be unveiled because it, I mean, it had to be unveiled so it could be seen because it had been veiled, right? So that, that's important just to know. Um, yeah. Now, um, here's my schematic theology of the incarnation. And we don't, sometimes don't think about how intricate this theology is. I mean, we've got, uh, Wanda, you're our Trinity expert now. We've got one God. Three persons who are God. So which one is it? It's both. Okay, Nobody would make this up because nobody understands it. Uh, this is a, a diagram that 
was devised in the third or fourth century to put the Trinity can on two dimensions, which by definition is impossible, but I think it's a good attempt. God the Father is God. He has all the attributes of deity. He's true, triune, transcendent, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, just, righteous, sovereign, loving, immutable, veracity, eternal life. He's all those things and more. But the Father is not the Son, nor is He the Holy Spirit. The Son, the second person of the Trinity, is full deity with all the attributes of deity, but He's not the Father. He's not the Son. He's a different person. Persons are mind, will, and emotion. Uh, and the Holy Spirit is a person, but He's not the Father nor the Son, but He is full deity, co-equal and co-eternal with the other two members of the Trinity. Right? So, boom. So, uh, realize, God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. God the Son is the active agent, which means God the Father is the sender, and Jesus is the sendee. And he quite often talks about that. I, I was not sent to do my own will, but do the will of the Father. I'm here to carry out, submit functionally to his program, even though we're co-equal. So when you read wives are to submit to their husbands, does that mean women are inherently... Uh, uh, inferior to men? Are, are women inferior to men according to the Bible? No. And we know that. First Peter 3 says, uh, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way uh, and grant them honor as fellow heirs the grace of life. Ontologically, uh, Blanche is equal with the Zane in every way, but we have different functions in the family like the uh, the wives carry the babies. Okay? Right? And different things like that. So the Lord Jesus takes a servant role, a subordinate role, but he's not subordinate to uh, in the incarnation. The incarnation is the word Jesus, the second person of Trinity, taking on humanity without ceasing to be deity. Now this is my simple diagram for that. From the point of the virgin conception forever. This is why you don't have aliens on some planet waiting for a savior. God's only going to do this once. My opinion, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll find out, but I don't think there's anybody else out there that's moral except a- angelic beings and human beings. That's my opinion. I'm sticking to it. But, uh, yeah, that rectangle represents the person of Christ. The first circle, they meet at tangents, right? The two circles, same size. God-man. Jesus is the God-man. One person, two natures. How do you reconcile the the metaphysical, spiritual rift between God and man. Who can do that? It's got to be a God-man. And he's got to do something nobody else could do, which is make an atonement for humanity by identifying completely with them while at the same time as God doing a work that lasts forever. Right. So this, this is critically important. So as I said last week, Christmas doesn't save anybody. The fact that the second person was willing to become incarnate, uh, even in a manger, doesn't save anybody, but for him to arrive in that form is necessary so that as the God-man, he could purchase salvation for all who believe through his S-A-S-L-B-S-R. What in the world is that? S-A-S stands for Substitutionary Atoning Sacrifice. Jesus didn't die as a virtuous martyr, although he was a virtuous martyr. He died as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the debt we owe God that we can't pay, he paid for us. Uh, the just died for the unjust, as First Peter 3.18 says. Now, a dead Savior can't get you to heaven, which is why the uh, literal bodily supernatural resurrection is so important, because it validates the saving power of the work of Christ. Uh, I like that little diagram, uh, God's offer of salvation, providing eternal life, gospel, empty cross, empty tomb. We emphasize the empty tomb at Easter, right? Meaning it's a bodily resurrection. But the empty cross was also important. The reformers said, we don't want to have a crucifix as our symbol. We want to have a cross because Jesus has died once and he's off the cross. And the focus is on the resurrection validating the payment, right? So what what does the Lord say at the end of the atonement? It says, it is finished. Three words in English, one word in the Greek. Tetelestai means paid in full. Mission accomplished kind of thing, right? Uh... I actually took that picture, and that's uh, just like the uh, photographer at the mall probably isn't as good as uh, he or she was that day. I'm not that good of a photographer, but I, I look at that picture from time to time, and 
the Demersons, by the way, I have no plans to leave in 2016, but uh, a lot of stuff is hurting. You know, stuff that doesn't hurt doesn't work very well anymore. So well, you, you never know. But the Demersons, a couple of years ago, I don't mention this a lot because I don't want, you know, you know, let everybody know they're my favorites, but um, which they are. But um, Julie and De- David really like that picture, and they blew it, blew it up. It's back there on the, the uh, north wall. And they gave it to me as a gift. At first I thought they were just giving it to the church, but they gave it to me as a gift. So now hear this. The ultimate threat. Yeah. <laughs> even when I get fired, or even when I retire and start working at Walmart as the Hello There Man, which is my retirement program, as I see it. That's the only thing I can do, really. Um, I'm taking that with me. Okay? Uh, if I die in office, uh, Debbie can decide what she wants to do with it, but I do want it displayed uh, in a prominent place during the services. Okay? It's mine. I can do with it what I want to. But, uh, yeah, uh, the resurrected Christ is the unique person of the universe. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus paid it all. We trust in him. We're given the gift of eternal life. He doesn't just give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. He gives you a whole new capacity and expects you to express it. But salvation isn't, let's make a deal. I'll give you this, Jesus. You give me eternal life. i got nothing to give. But to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, who can't do anything to be saved, that ungodly person faith, that time I did hit it. Uh, but that was just to get your attention. Uh, is reckoned as righteousness. Uh, take this to heart. Great Christmas songs like O Little Town of Bethlehem and Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Christmas carols, we call them. Around here, we call them Christmas wonzers now. Uh, great Christmas carols teach great theological truth. And this theological truth is very practical. Uh, passage like Philippians 2 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Uh, and consider everybody else as just as important as you are. And don't look out just for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. And that's in a church context, okay? That's not going to the bad side of town where they're killing and fornicating and selling stuff and saying, hey guys, what do you want to do tonight? You know, I'll pay for it. You know, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about amongst believers, you know. Uh, we ought to uh, be bending over backward to open the doors and clean stuff and help and sign up for stuff. And uh, the sign-up list should only be out there for like, you know, one service. They should all just fill up like that because it should be that important to us. But that exhortation I just read okay, is uh, based on the theology of Christmas. If you read verses 5 through 11, I won't take the time to do that right now. It's all about Jesus giving up His glory and giving up the independent use of His attributes and taking the form of a man and looking just like a regular person and ultimately going to a cross. He's wanting to do all of that. And this is the guy who says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So uh, if you want to make Christmas incarnational in your life, there's only one way to do that, and that's by embracing as a believer a servanthood lifestyle as a commitment. You know, a couple of weeks ago in Acts we said routine faithfulness isn't routine, easy or automatic. Uh, I would say the flip side of that is However, radical discipleship should be routine. I mean, it's a living sacrifice. It's very rational to give yourself back to the person who died for you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do the uh, TBF Christmas 2015 Challenge. Since, Michael, you're here, I'm going to put you to work. You take this part of the group, please, and figure out how to do it. And Sonia, you do it. Pass this out. I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do something. And I'm not going to make it cheesy and make you do it right now when everybody's looking at you. But I want you to read through this. And what I'm saying is, to make Christmas incarnational in your life, you need to make what most American Christians would see as radical discipleship just a lifestyle. Following the example of Jesus from the get-go, I mean from virgin conception, virgin birth on, and rooted in our love for Him, slash appreciation for our salvation through faith in Him, I, in Zane Britton, Brad McCoy, whatever your name is, as a believer, will freely submit. That's an oxymoron. Freely submit. Like Jumbo Shrimp. 
yeah, will fully submit to a lifestyle of servanthood to the glory of God, even though this will involve me giving up certain rights and privileges. Uh, people love servanthood until people start treating them like one. People love servanthood until it involves actually giving up something. But I'm telling you, that's what normative Christianity is all about. Believers living a life of servanthood. So here's my challenge. I want you to look at this and take it very seriously. I've got a copy folded in my Bible. I want you, in the next couple of days, as a Christmas present to, to the Lord, as it were, sign that, put your name there, sign it and date it, and fold it in half, put it in your Bible. And I want you to carry that around in 2016. And, uh, you know, most of the stuff I get mad and frustrated about doesn't even matter 24 hours later. And it usually involves some kind of selfish, uh, knee-jerk reaction to something that I should probably fix myself. And maybe you're not like that, but that's where I am quite often, too often. And so, you know, I'm just thinking about how are we going to wrap this up? That's how I'm going to wrap it up. I want you to... Uh, Think about doing this. Don't brag about it. Don't come in for sharing time Wednesday and brag about it. Don't come sharing time Wednesday at all because we're not going to sharing time for two weeks on Wednesday nights. Uh, we will have sharing time today in elders groups. But uh, that's my challenge. Will you take that to heart, Sonia? Uh, you know, mothers, uh, I feel like just saying mothers don't even need to sign this because, uh, you know, it's kind of part of the job. But I, th- I don't get hurt for you to kind of rethink your whole motivation. But... Uh, yeah, God puts you in a lot of places where you can serve others. But sometimes you have to serve them with tough love. We're not going to uh, compromise our doctrinal or moral standards to be servant. But uh, I think just about everybody in this room, certainly me, could be a better servant with better, uh, better incentive, better focus in this next year. And I hope that will happen for all of us. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us never to forget the amazing grace you've expressed by sending the Son the amazing grace he expressed by embracing that role in the plan and the way the Holy Spirit works to make it all come to light as you convict of sin and our need and our guilt and our inability and open our hearts to believe and give eternal life, regenerate the believing heart. And we give you praise that uh, Christmas is the beginning of a glide path that takes all who believe in your very presence. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not in the depth of their heart. Said, Lord Jesus, I, I know you're holy and perfect and I'm not and I break my own standards, much less yours at times. Uh, and I can't fix it, but I believe you are the Son of God. I believe that you died for my sins and paid for them and rose again from the dead. And I want you to be my Savior. I trust myself and my eternal well-being to you and you alone. And I pray that, uh, Lord, if uh, you work that into our hearts and people's hearts in this building this morning, uh, that uh, you'd empower them and direct them to live it out and with a lifestyle of servanthood. Forgive some of us who have been believers for a long time, uh, for decades, not being consistently the kind of uh, willing servants you're calling us to be. And I pray you might speak to us uh, during this Christmas season. And we might, as it were, give Jesus that kind of gift this year. We pray these things in his name, Jesus' name. Amen.